Let me invite you to take out your Bibles and turn them open to Mark chapter 8. If you do not have a Bible, know there's one provided in the pew in front of you to use. If you do not own a Bible, know that there are some on the table in the foyer. Grab one of those on your way out. We'd love to gift you with your own copy of the Scriptures. Mark chapter 8. As you're finding your way there, let me share with you a story uh, that Paul Tripp shared about taking his son uh, to a museum for the first time. This is what he said about it. Tripp says, I remember taking my youngest son to one of the national art galleries in Washington, D.C. As we made our approach, I was so excited about what we were going to see. He was decidedly unexcited. But I just knew that once inside, he would have his mind blown and would thank me for what I had done for him that day. As it turned out, his mind wasn't blown. It wasn't even activated. I saw things of such stunning beauty that brought me to the edge of tears. But he yawned, moaned, and complained his way through gallery after gallery. With every new gallery, I was enthralled, but each time we walked into a new art space, he begged me to leave. He was surrounded by glory, but saw none of it. He stood in the middle of wonders, but was bored out of his mind. His eyes worked well, but his heart was stone blind. He saw everything, but he saw nothing. Did you even think that was possible? Did you think it was possible for a person to see everything while seeing nothing simultaneously? If you've been journeying with us through the book of Mark, this is what you've seen over and over and over again. People seeing everything, yet seeing nothing at the same time. Many people fixing their eyes on the person of Jesus as he's walking through the region of Galilee, teaching with incredible authority, casting out demons, healing the sick, walking on water, calming storms, doing all these miraculous wonders, revealing to everyone in the vicinity that he is God in the flesh, that he has an unrivaled and unmatched authority. Many men and women are laying eyes upon Jesus in this gospel, seeing everything but seeing nothing at the same time. And the reason why that is the case as you've been journeying through the book of Mark is that people are seeing Jesus do all kinds of things, but, but it's not registering within them that this man, Jesus, is utterly unique. Their, their hearts aren't being captivated by this Jesus. They're not readily recognizing the beauty of God in him. Although they all see the things that he's doing, none of them are seeing God in him, and it's causing quite... A stir. This is why Jesus would say time and time again about those who were in vicinity and who were observing him and watching him and looking in his direction. He would say, you guys have eyes, but you do not see. You're seeing everything, but you're not perceiving. You're not understanding who I am and what I am about. And so over the course of this gospel, there's this gradual unveiling of the identity of Jesus. And, and it's an unveiling that must come to people that is utterly essential for a person's salvation because as we'll see in this passage each and every person is born spiritually blind that people are born into this world seeing everything but not seeing anything people are born in this world perhaps with eyes that can see but with hearts that are blind people who may not be seeing the beauty of God and his kingdom in the person of Jesus and when you step into this story that we're looking at in Mark chapter 8, is understanding that this story that was just read for us, beginning of verse 22 all the way down to verse 30, that this story 
is unique to Mark. It's a story that's unique to his gospel. It's not found in the other three. And it's also a story that is unique in what goes down in it. Because the passage begins with this miracle in verses 22 through 26. And then you have this conversation about who people say that Jesus is. And then a direct question that's asked of Peter and the rest of the, rest of the disciples. Who do you say that I am? And, and you get this unique story that has some unique features in it. And, and you begin to discover that although this is a miracle that really happened, it was a healing that actually took place, Jesus was setting things up for a much deeper lesson. That verses 22 through 28, or verses 22 through 26, not only convey to us a real miracle, but they actually are used by Jesus as a type of parable. A type of parable illustrating not only the healing of a man's physical vision, but the process of our spiritual illumination. This is a parable about spiritual blindness. And we know this, again, because this story is found in a very strategic place here in Mark chapter 8. Beginning in verses 1 through 10, you have the feeding of the 4,000 that the disciples were a part of, and they, they didn't quite get. They weren't sure how things were going to happen for this crowd, even though they had seen Jesus feed a bigger crowd earlier in this gospel. They still are doubting Jesus. They are still confused about who Jesus is and what Jesus wants for people. So their spiritual blindness is apparent in that story. And then you get into the Pharisees and how they're demanding for a sign, and a very similar uh, exchange happens there, so much so that you get down to verse 17 of chapter 8, and you hear Jesus say this. He says, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? He's emphasizing this theme of spiritual blindness that is going to be illustrated in the healing of this blind man in Bethsaida. In a, a, par a parable-type miracle that will be explained in verses 27 all the way down to the rest of the chapter, actually. But we're just going to jump into, we're just going to follow it down to verse 30. So you consider that story. It says again in verse 22 that they, the disciples, came with Jesus to Bethsaida. They've been traveling and journeying with Jesus throughout this region and and it says that some people brought to him a blind man, and they begged him to touch this guy. And Jesus took the blind man by the hand, and he did something very similar as he did the deaf mute earlier in chapter 7. He takes him aside, and he ministers to him one-on-one. -on -one but notice what goes down. He leads him out of the village, and when he had spit on his eyes, Jesus spit on the guy, and laid his hands on him. And then he asked him, do you see anything? Now, every other miracle we've seen Jesus perform up to this point has happened instantly. Jesus has had no problem healing anyone. He's healed people from a distance. He's healed people with a touch. He's healed people in a variety of ways. But here, he asks a question that is strategic, a question that is asked not because Jesus doesn't know the answer, but because Jesus, again, is setting up a parable. He's ministering in this guy's life in such a way that would extend far beyond his life as a living parable of what would be called spiritual blindness. He spits on his eye. He asks him the question, do you see anything? And then in verse 24, the man looks up and he says, I see men, but they look like trees walking. I see men, but they're fuzzy. Their, their figures aren't sharp. They, they look like trees walking. And some of you may say, well, if he's blind, how does he know what trees look like, right? The Bible's unreliable. Well, the it's probably because he wasn't born blind. 
A lot of people went blind in the first century because of some infectious disease that they couldn't remedy through uh, medicine and some of the technology that we have today. And so he's probably seen trees before. And, and he draws that analogy because his blindness perhaps wasn't a blindness from birth. It was a blindness that came upon him at some point in his life. So he says, I see men, but they look like trees walking. And then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. He goes back in. He does more work in this guy's life. And then he opened his eyes, and then it says his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Now, it's a strange unfolding. It's a gradual healing. And you wonder, well, how in the world is, like, why couldn't Jesus heal him perfectly the first time? Well, again, it's because Jesus is setting up a parable for us a parable illustrating spiritual blindness and how, uh, on one hand, spiritual blindness is universal. He's saying when we look at this man's condition, we should get a picture of uh, the human condition, this spiritual blindness that is a universal condition. This is why the disciples are described as being spiritually blind, not only in this chapter, but earlier, when they're not quite getting who Jesus is and not quite getting what Jesus is doing. And then Jesus would say the same thing about the Pharisees. They are spiritually blind. Everyone is indicted with this spiritual blindness, this, this inability to see the beauty of God in the person of Jesus. He says this is true of everyone. And this makes the Bible's assessment of our condition utterly unique. You see, the Bible does not, certainly does not project what might be considered a modern secular view of humanity that views morality as, as uh, relative. It certainly doesn't have, it, it certainly doesn't view life that way. And it, the Bible certainly doesn't project a view of the human condition in a way that's reminiscent of antiquity. It was very common in the first century. It was very common in ancient days to see, uh, to basically put men and women in categories and say, well, you do have good people and you have bad people. You have uh, morally good and morally bad people, but it didn't indict everyone the same way. There were classifications in how um, the ancient world viewed reality. It was a dualistic approach. And here, what you find in Jesus, which is utterly unique, is that in Jesus, he doesn't look at the world in a dualistic kind of way, saying, well, yes, you have naturally good people and naturally bad people. No, Jesus would say you have universally spiritually blind people people whose hearts do not recognize the beauty of God in the person of Jesus, people who, whose hearts do not readily beat towards Jesus with love and trust and faith and obedience. It's a universal condition. Spiritual blindness is universal. But not only is spiritual blindness universal affecting everyone, including all of us in this room at different points in our lives, spiritual blindness is utterly pervasive it affects every aspect of who we are. This is why it takes in this story. I think this is why Jesus is illustrating a gradual healing in this man's life because spiritual blindness usually takes more than one touch from Jesus to cure. Spiritual blindness isn't easily eradicated. It usually isn't instantaneously fixed. There may come a point where, yes, your eyes are opened and you begin to see the beauty of God in Jesus. You begin to trust him, love him, follow him. But as you do so, you're going to discover there are a bunch of areas in your life where you're still kind of spiritually blind towards. You're going to discover things about yourself that you weren't aware of before you met Jesus. And over the course of your journey with Jesus, you're going to discover areas that need more illumination, areas in you that need more light, areas in you that need more truth, areas in you that need more revelation, because the spiritual blindness that Jesus cures 
doesn't necessarily happen instantaneously. It happens throughout a process and a lifelong journey of discipleship and illumination. This means that if anyone in this room who says, you know, I believe solidly in Jesus, I believe solidly in Jesus, what this means for you is that if that is true, and I pray it's true for every one of us, if this understanding of spiritual blindness is true, then if you believe in Jesus solidly, it would be unbecoming of you to look down upon people who don't. People who may believe in Jesus with a little less security and a little less assurance than you do. Someone who's still wrestling with the things of God and the truth of the gospel. People who are in that process of having their hearts awakened to the beauty of Christ. How much patience are you able and willing to show towards those who might not believe as solidly as you do? See, the reality of a pervasive spiritual blindness means that when Jesus begins to cure it in our lives, we're undergoing a lifelong process of change and transformation, and you're going to discover in your journey with Jesus that 10 years from now, you're going to look back on who you are in this space, in this moment, and you're going to say, man, I was so foolish back then. I didn't quite get it like I get it now. I didn't quite get it like I did, or like I did I'm not getting it now like I did then. You're going to see a transformation that happens in you the longer you journey with Jesus, so much so that you can look back on your life in 10 years and you will hardly recognize yourself. And when that happens, it doesn't mean you don't believe now. It just means you've matured, you've grown. Your spiritual blindness that has prohibited you from not only seeing the beauty of God in Jesus, but also seeing the beauty of life, he calls us to lead in how we love others and how we love one another, how we serve people, how we walk humbly, how we, how we exercise patience and kindness and generosity. The ways that we do that begin to grow as more illumination and more light begins to shine in us and light begins to shine through us so be patient with people who do not believe as solidly as you do right now because however you see yourself change in 10 years understand that they're in the process of changing as well their faith is in the process of growing through more truth through more light through more healing and restored restore can't talk restorative power coming to them from Jesus so spiritual blindness is universal. Spiritual blindness is pervasive. It affects how we view Jesus, how we see ourselves, how we see the world that we live in. And over time, we begin to see things with a little greater clarity. I think this is why this parable is designed the way that it did. See, Jesus did not mess up. You know, he didn't fail the first time he went to heal this guy. It's one of the most remarkable things about Jesus is when he, go, he goes to... When he does any type of work in any person, he's usually doing far more in that person than they realize. God is doing an infinite number of things in every moment of every day. Therefore, we don't ever want to dismiss anything that we hear from God. We don't want to dismiss anything that is, being, that is swelling up within us from God, any truth that we are beginning to see. We don't want to dismiss any of it because not only does it have benefit for us but it has benefit for those around us as we all grow and as we all begin to discover more of who Jesus is and what his kingdom is about 
So you have this parable laid out here, and you have this idea of spiritual blindness that is universal, a spiritual blindness that is pervasive, affecting everything, and it takes time to overcome, which brings us to some, to some, to some solutions. When it comes to how spiritual blindness is kind of pulled back on our lives, when how, how spiritual blindness is solved within us as we journey through this world, there's a few things that we want to kind of glean from, from this story as well as from Jesus' conversation with Peter. One is that we need to understand that the solution to spiritual blindness ordinarily, it is ordinarily healed in stages. It is ordinarily healed in stages. Again, cautioning patience from you for others. That spiritual blindness is ordinarily healed in stages. It takes time. There's a process to it. Now, one of the things that kind of knocks us off key as we seek to follow Jesus through this world, one of the reasons some of us wrestle with a lack of assurance as it relates to salvation and those types of things is because many of us have adopted and we've championed one paradigm for conversion from the scriptures. Usually in circles such as ours, when we talk about how a person is converted, how they come to faith, and we look to, a, to an example in the Bible, usually we run to the Apostle Paul. And we see his story and we think, well, my story doesn't look like his story because his seems instantaneous. His, his seemed dramatic. His seemed uh, everything happening in a moment. So we tend to look at the Apostle Paul as the uh, paradigm for conversion. And we don't feel like we, our story matches up with that. We start wrestling with insecurity and doubt and those types of things. If you're not familiar with the Apostle Paul and his story... The Apostle Paul, before he met Jesus, was commonly referred to as Saul in the book of Acts. And Saul was a persecutor of the church. He was commissioned by the religious rulers and other Jude Jewish officials to squash the movement of Christianity. And so he went throughout the region persecuting Christians, putting many of them to death. He oversaw the first martyrdom, the, the murder of a guy named Stephen. But when he was en route to persecute the church, moving as opposite of God's direction as he possibly could have gone, uh, Jesus showed up. He saw a bright light. Jesus appeared to him. He fell down blind, and, and he uh, met Jesus. His life in that moment was changed. It was a dramatic conversion, an instantaneous illumination where he recognized Jesus as the Son of God, the Savior, the Messiah, and Saul then repented and believed the gospel. He then gave his life to serving Jesus, traveling around the known world, telling everyone he knew about Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. And it's a powerful picture of conversion, this instantaneous moment, but sometimes we think that's the only way a person comes to faith. That's the only way spiritual uh, blindness is overcome. We don't usually think of it being overcome in stages or being overcome in process, which is why I love the book of Mark. Because the book of Mark presents another paradigm, another picture for how a person is converted, another picture for how a person may come to faith in Jesus. And it's found in the story of Peter. The way Mark conveys Peter's story in this gospel is he conveys it in a way that shows a gradual discovery of who God is in Jesus. It's more of a process in Peter. You see Peter getting it and just knocking it out of the park in one moment only to really blow it the next. You'll see it in today's story where Jesus asks Peter straight up, who do you say that I am? And he says, well, you are the Christ. 
And in Matthew's gospel, we're told that Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He kills it. It's a great confession. It is the confession. But in the very next passage, when Jesus talks about going and being crucified on the cross and how that is necessary for salvation, Peter rebukes Jesus. So he nails it in one moment only to blow it the next. And his understanding of the gospel grows over time. It grows as he's fellowshipping with Jesus and as he's following Jesus in the context of the other disciples and in that particular community. And so if you're someone who's come to faith in a dramatic way, I praise God for your conversion. If you are someone who's come to faith in a gradual way, maybe over a series of, maybe over a long process of thinking and talking and it wasn't very emotional. It seemed to be very heady and having these conversations about Jesus over time and over time the, your eyes beginning to open to the beauty of Jesus. I praise God for your conversion. The thing we have to keep in mind as we're discipling one another and as we think about the way spiritual blindness is cured in our lives is that our experience of salvation is not normative. Meaning, how I came to faith in Jesus isn't how I expect you to come to faith in Jesus. The experience isn't what's normative. What's normative is belief. What's normative is faith. Whether that faith exploded in you like a firecracker or whether that faith grew in you gradually like a sunrise however it happened I just praise the fact that you have faith what we have in common won't necessarily be our experiences but what we have in common will be our shared faith in Jesus where are you looking for salvation who are you trusting in for redemption who are you banking your life on as you journey through this world See, spiritual blindness is ordinarily healed, I believe, in stages. I think it happens gradually as people have multiple exposures to the gospel, multiple hearings of the gospel, multiple interactions with people who follow Jesus and love Jesus, and over time, their hearts begin to waken up to the beauty of God in Jesus, and suddenly they find themselves believing in this Jesus. But not only do you see it overcoming, uh, spiritual blindness being overcome or being healed in stages, you also need to see how spiritual blindness is necessarily healed in community. It is necessarily healed in community. This is something that not only Peter's story, but Paul's story had in common as well. The moment Paul saw Jesus in Acts chapter 9 and his heart was converted and he trusted in Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ, as Lord, as Savior, the very first instructions he receives from Jesus is to go find a guy by the name of Ananias. Step into community. Because community is where not only our spiritual blindness is overcome in the moment of conversion or salvation, but in community is how our spiritual blindness continues to be overcome as we grow together in our faith. I think you see it in Paul's story. I think you see it in Peter's story, which is why when he's journeying with Jesus, he's journeying with Jesus in the company of the other disciples, and they're learning and growing together. But then also when you look back at the story of the blind man, you see it illustrated there. How did this blind man meet Jesus? How did he come to experience these multiple touches from Jesus? Well, he did so because he had some friends, some people in his life who believed for him. 
people in his life who loved him enough to bring him to Jesus, even though it seems he didn't want to go to Jesus. Because what you find in that moment is this guy wasn't very enthusiastic. He doesn't even open his mouth. He doesn't respond to Jesus the way uh, we're going to see another blind man respond to Jesus in Mark chapter 10 where there's another blind man who is healed, and he's very aggressive in going after Jesus. In fact, it says that when Jesus was walking by him and he learned that Jesus was in earshot, he cried out, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. Healed. This guy's not doing that, but he has some friends in his life. He has people who believe for him, people who are bringing people who are willing to bring him to Jesus, but not only bring him to Jesus, it says they begged Jesus to touch him. They begged Jesus to heal this guy. They wanted his vision restored. They wanted him to come to see who Jesus is. And so they begged for it to happen. And let me ask you, how often do you beg God for other people's vision? How often do you intercede for those in your life who do not see the beauty of God in Jesus, who are seeing everything but seeing nothing at the same time? Maybe even they can, they can even regurgitate the facts of Jesus, but their hearts aren't really inflamed with much faith and affections for Jesus. Are you willing to beg Jesus for their illumination? Are you willing to beg Jesus for their spiritual blindness to be healed? Are you willing to be their community, the community in which it is necessary Uh, to have in order for spiritual blindness to be cured you know this past week we met a young man who recently met Jesus who woke up one day and started reading Ephesians chapter 2 and he and he saw the beauty of God in Jesus he repented he's now following Christ in fact we had the pleasure of celebrating his baptism uh, right down the street here earlier this week it was a phenomenal picture of grace and faith and repentance but you know that that moment didn't just happen in a vacuum That moment in his life happened because he had a friend in his life who committed to begging Jesus for him. His friend would even tell us that, you know, I I made the commitment that I'm going to pray for him until I die. I'm going to pray for him until he dies, or I'm going to pray for him until he meets Jesus. And then for over two years, he had conversations with him about Jesus, just sowing the seed of the word, sowing the seed of the gospel. And then, then he wakes up one Sunday, and he starts reading the Bible, and Something clicks, something registers. Spiritual blindness is overcome and suddenly he's now repenting and believing the gospel and he comes to be baptized with so much enthusiasm and so much joy and so much of a desire to see Jesus restore his sight so that he might see the beauty of God in Jesus and begin to see the world the way Jesus intends him to see it. It's a fascinating thing, but it happened in large part because of the community that loved him enough to beg Jesus for him and a community that was willing to serve the gospel steadily and continually over time. You see, the reality is all of us need help from people who've been looking at Jesus longer than we have. We all need to be a part of a community where we're surrounded by people who've been seeing Jesus longer, who've been seeing life longer, who's been seeing the world longer. This is why we need community, so that in the process of journeying with others, blind spots in our lives can be exposed gospel truth and gospel light can be shown so that we continue to change, we continue to grow, we continue to progress in our faith towards spiritual maturity. Community then becomes a very necessary context for spiritual blindness to be overcome. 
There's a reason why when you met Jesus as a follower, if you're a follower of Christ now, there's a reason why when you started following Jesus, did, Jesus did not lead you into isolation. If you feel like Jesus is leading you into isolation, I don't think you're following Jesus. I don't believe Jesus ever leads a disciple into isolation. Jesus leads disciples into community. He leads them into relationships with people that they can learn from, grow from, serve with, and be a family with. And so community becomes very important. And you even see this hinted at here in Mark chapter 8. You know, Mark chapter 8 has been described as kind of the, the continental, continental divide of this gospel. This is kind of a halfway point in the gospel and things begin to change in this moment. As this question of who then is this is answered by Peter when he says you are the Christ and, and then as Jesus begins to explicitly in the passage we'll look out next week he begins to explain about how he must die he must rise and he must do these things it's basically the heart of Mark's gospel conveyed in this moment but what happens in this chapter is not only is the heart of the gospel conveyed you're also cued into the reality of discipleship and the reality of, of following Jesus in community I'll show you if you look at verse 27. Notice what happens after this man is healed. It says, Jesus then went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And, and here's the phrase. It's a significant phrase. It says, and on the way he asked his disciples this question. That phrase, on the way, is the theme of not only um, of this chapter, but also several chapters going. It is a phrase that Mark's going to use over and over and over again, and it's a phrase that conveys this dynamic of journey, this dynamic of discipleship, this process of having our spiritual blindness overcome in the process or in the context of community. So, that, so much so that, that it's a significant phrase for Mark because even in the book of Acts, did you know that the first Christians were referred to as followers of what? Followers of the way. Echoing what Jesus would say in John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus then said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. I am the way. And so Christians referred to themselves as followers of the way. Mark is is echoing that for his first readers by using this phrase probably 10 to 12 times over the next two or three chapters of this gospel as they're journeying with Jesus on the way and they're doing it together in the context of community because that's how we follow Jesus. And as we follow Jesus together, we begin to see, we help one another see more and more and more of his beauty together. But not only is spiritual blindness overcome in the context of discipleship or the context of community, which we're going to see echoed time and time again over the next few weeks, but it's only healed, and you're going to get this in this next passage, it is only healed when submission is exercised. Spiritual blindness is only healed in submission. You see this in the very next text, right after... Jesus and his disciples go on and they begin traveling through the villages of Caesarea Philippi and on the way, it is on the way is where Jesus begins to engage them in this instructive conversation. Jesus asks a question in verse 27. He says, who do people say that I am? Now this is a unique thing for Jesus to do because rabbis did not typically ask questions of their disciples. 
Disciples were the students. Disciples were the ones who asked questions. But Jesus was a unique rabbi. Jesus wasn't simply a rabbi. He was the initiator of everything that the disciples would learn. So he would ask the questions. He would set the agenda. And so he asked this question, who do people say that I am? It's a generic question. It's a general question. He's wanting to know about his reputation amongst the masses. But again, Jesus isn't asking this question because he's ignorant of the answer. He's not oblivious. He's asking this question in order to set up instruction, in order to set up further illumination, further light. And the response that the disciples give are are these. It says in verse 28, and they told Jesus, well, some say that you are John the Baptist. Others say that you are Elijah, one of the Old Testament prophets. And then others, there were some who would say Jeremiah in Matthew's gospel. Some would say he's Jeremiah or he's like Jeremiah and those types of things. And so all of their answers get after a hint of truth about Jesus, but they're, they're, they're grossly inadequate. They say true, the crowd, the reputation that Jesus has amongst the masses is true, but it's insufficient. Jesus is a type of prophet, but he's much more than a prophet. He's much more than a prophet. So he says, they say, uh, he's like a prophet. This is a true thing, but it's insufficient, which is why Jesus would turn the corner in verse 29 and he would drive it home. He would get to his point and saying, but who do you say that I am? I'm aware of what my reputation is amongst the people who are seeing me but not seeing me. I'm aware of uh, my reputation amongst the masses that are, that are living in a spiritual, living out a spiritual blindness, not really seeing who I am and but who do you say that I am? And he presses in on, the, on his disciples. And listen to what he says. After asking them, Peter, who was the spokesman, the representative of the disciples, he answers for everyone. He says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the anointed one. In Matthew's account, we get a fuller version where Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus would respond to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for your flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but God did, showing how spiritual blindness can ultimate, was ultimately only overcome by God's grace towards us, by opening our eyes and helping us see his beauty in Jesus. But getting back to this idea of submission, where spiritual blindness is only healed in submission, when, when Peter makes this confession, when he says, you are the Christ, you are the anointed one, there was some common understanding of what that phrase meant. In the Old Testament, which was the frame of reference for everybody Jesus is talking to, there were three offices that were anointed. You had anointed prophets, you had anointed priests, and you had anointed kings. And so for Jesus to be the Christ, the anointed one, is kind of summering all of that up in Jesus, saying you are the Uh, premier prophet you will ultimately be revealed as the great high priest but I think most significantly what's being conveyed in that statement you are the Christ is this longing and this belief that the disciples had that Jesus was the king he was the long-awaited king the king of all kings who would come and redeem his people and ultimately recreate the world you get this type of understanding out of Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5, where one of the prophets from the Old Testament would say this about Jesus or about the coming Messiah. Jeremiah said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. 
So I think when Peter says you are the Christ, I think that image, that dynamic is coming into play. And what you're beginning to discover is how spiritual blindness is only healed in submission, meaning it's only healed when you and I submit to Christ as King or to Jesus as King or to Jesus as Lord, recognizing that He alone has the power to change our lives from the inside out, and only He can set the world right. And so we trust Jesus the Christ, the King of all kings, the one who can do things that no other earthly ruler could ever possibly do. This is a confession of submission. You are the Christ. I'm submitting to you. You see, many of us, we, we sometimes in our culture, we get an attendant, we have a tendency to want to honor Jesus by speaking positively about him. And we can some, say some very positive things about Jesus, and in our minds, we can think we're honoring Jesus. We can say Jesus was a great teacher. We might even say the way uh, the Islamic world says that Jesus is a prophet. And when they give Jesus the title of prophet, understanding that they are giving him a title that in their minds is very honorable. It's, it's high praise for the Muslim world to call Jesus a prophet. And we have friends and family members in our lives that talk positively about Jesus. Well, he was a kind guy. He was a nice guy. He was a servant kind of guy. We, we love Jesus in, for all of these reasons, but it's possible for you and I in our efforts to honor Jesus to actually insult Jesus. It's possible to honor Jesus or to tr in our efforts to honor Jesus to actually insult him, and it happens when we only say some things about him and not everything about him. Or if we only say important things about him and not ultimate things about him. It is important to know that Jesus was a teacher. It is important to know that Jesus was a servant. It is important to know that Jesus is a prophet. But what's ultimate about Jesus is that he's the Christ. He's the king. He's the Lord. He's the anointed, unique, the one anointed, unique person in all of the universe. And if we want our spiritual blindness to be transformed, if we want it to be um, done away with, then it will only come when you and I, or as you and I submit our lives to Christ, to Jesus, not simply as a teacher, not simply as a messenger or a prophet, but only when, as we submit our life to Jesus as the Christ, as the King. This is what I mean when I say that spiritual blindness is only overcome in in submission and so let me ask you do you only know Jesus by reputation or do you know Jesus by repentance do you only know Jesus by reputation or do you know Jesus by repentance the difference makes all the difference submission is repentance submission is saying I'm just gonna put myself before Jesus I'm gonna trust what he has to say about everything I'm going to trust what he tells me about me and my need for him. I'm going to trust what he says about the necessity for his crucifixion and the necessity of his resurrection. I'm going to trust what Jesus says about everything. That's submission. That's repentance. But understand that when Jesus shifts gears and he moves from asking a generic question regarding Jesus' reputation, 
And then he asks a pointed and piercing question of his disciples. He's asking that because how that question is answered makes all the difference. Who do you say that Jesus is? Do you only know him by way of reputation or do you know him by way of repentance? Are you submitting to Jesus as Savior, as Lord, as King? Are you submitting to Jesus as the Christ? You see, there comes a point in each and every one of our lives in our discipleship, whether we come to faith in Jesus over a gradual process or whether it happens instantaneously like it did in Paul's life, however we come to faith in Jesus, ultimately there does come a point where you and I must look deep within Jesus and we must look deep within ourselves and we must risk making a decision. And we've got to risk where we're going to put our faith. We're going to risk whether or not we're going to trust him. We're going to risk whether or not we're going to let Jesus shape our worldview. We're going to risk whether or not we're letting Jesus uh, shape how we see other people, how we see the world that we live in. We have to take a risk that, is, that takes the form of a decision. There comes a point in time in every person's life, in each and every one of our lives as we're hearing this message where a decision needs to be made. And we have to decide if I'm just going to know Jesus by way of his reputation, what I've been told about him, or if I'm going to know Jesus by way of repentance, where I'm going to personally trust him. I'm personally going to submit my life to him. I'm personally going to step into community in which I can grow. I'm personally going to begin to see my life changed over the course of time as I follow Jesus as Savior, as King, as, as Lord. And I can't help but think that some of you have heard the gospel so much. And right now you're trying so hard to keep the shade down in your lives. You're trying so hard to hold the shades down and I want to encourage you with the fact that your efforts are futile. You will not be able to hold the shades down forever. God in his grace can break through your spiritual blindness just as he did Peter, just as he did Paul. God in his grace can and will overcome your spiritual blindness so that you might see his beauty in Jesus, so that you might repent and believe the gospel, so that you might step into the kingdom of God, find life, find salvation, find hope. So if you're trying to hold the shades down, just let go. Release your grip. Let the light of the gospel shine into your soul. Let the words that Jesus says to Peter in Matthew chapter 16, blessed are you for this was not discovered by you. This was revealed to you by God and his grace. Spiritual blindness is overcome when we repent, when we submit, when we stop trying to hold the shades down and we recognize how futile our efforts are and we submit ourselves to the beauty of God in Jesus. Martin Luther said this one time. He said, you know, our, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. What that means is when you become, when you put your faith in Jesus, when you repent and believe the gospel, that's not just a one-time thing. It's not just a point in your life. It's the posture of your life now so that you live your life steadily repenting, steadily submitting, and you find your spiritual blindness being overcome gradually, overcome definitively, and you begin to see life and Jesus and the world with the type of clarity that this blind man experiences in this story. And so we assume this posture of repentance as we journey with Jesus on the way, as we follow Christ in the context of community, 
trusting him and submitting to him as Lord and Savior. Now, as I bring this to a close, let me, let me just ask a simple question of why, why, or I don't want to ask a question. Let me just share with you why I believe it's worth it. Why I believe submitting to Jesus is worth it. Why repenting is worth it. Why trusting Jesus is worth it. The reason why I believe it is worth it is because Jesus has done something for you that no one in the world would ever do for you. Jesus has done something for you that Jesus, that no one in the world could ever do for you. And it's echoed and hinted at in this story of the blind man. And you see it in this moment where this strange act that Jesus does, it says that he, he spits on the man. And he spits in this story. And as you've been journeying through, gospel, you, through this gospel, you know that this is the second time that we've seen Jesus spit. And the reason why I believe that is significant is because spitting in antiquity, spitting in the Old Testament represented shame and disgrace. Earlier in chapter 7, Jesus spit, it seems, in his hands before he healed that deaf mute. In other words, Jesus spit on himself. But then here in chapter 8, where he's moving into this conversation about discipleship, he spits on the man he's about to heal. He spits on himself first, and then he spits on this blind man. And again, spit represents shame and disgrace. And the reason why I believe repenting and submitting our lives to Jesus is found in that image. It's found because that image signifies and hints at and echoes what Jesus would later do on the cross. Hold your spot in Mark chapter 8 and turn back to Isaiah chapter 50 real quick. Isaiah chapter 50. Let me show you where this theme comes to play in the Bible. Isaiah chapter 50. This is one of those passages that is prophesying and anticipating the work the Messiah would do, what Christ would accomplish. So you step into Isaiah chapter 50 and look at verse 6. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6. The Messiah or the suffering servant is speaking in this, and that would later be Jesus, revealed as Jesus. It says in verse 6, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out my beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. This is a verse prophesying what Christ would endure when he goes to the cross. He would have the hair on his beard plucked. He would be spit upon. He would be treated shamefully and disgracefully. Why did Jesus do that? Well, he did that for us. When Jesus spits on himself in Mark chapter 7, what you find in this theme of spitting and disgrace ultimately revealed in the crucifixion is that when Jesus died on the cross, he went to the cross to bear all of our shame and to bear all of our disgrace. This is what Jesus did for us. He took the hit our sin deserved. He took the punishment that our shame and our disgrace necessitates, that our spiritual blindness speaks to. We, we see in Jesus on the cross a one who is being spit upon and disgraced. We, but we also read verse 7 of Isaiah 50 where Jesus would say this about his father, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. Meaning when Jesus dies on the cross, he's not going to stay dead that Jesus is going to be vindicated, 
that God his Father would raise him from the grave. And this is precisely what goes down in the gospel. He goes to the cross bearing our shame, being spit upon. But when he goes to the grave, he does not stay in the grave. He's vindicated by his Father. He's raised from death so that you and I might find hope and life in him. This is what happens when he goes to the cross. This is why I believe Jesus is worth it because he did that for you. But then you might ask, well, why does he spit on the blind man in Mark chapter 8? Why would he spit on him? And the reason for that, I think, is found in what Jesus is going to teach us next week. When you look down, just to give you a little hint of it, if you look down in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, listen to what it says. It says, And then Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And then Peter took him aside and rebuked him. This cannot be. You're not going to die that way. Then Jesus rebuked Peter. And then you drop down to verse 34. It says, And Jesus called to him the crowd and with his disciples and said to them, If anyone would come after me, get this, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For what can a man give in return for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. In other words, the reason why I think Jesus spit on the blind man in Mark chapter 8 is because he's telling him that when you submit your life to me, when you repent, when your spiritual blindness is overcome and you begin to see the world, you begin to see the beauty of God in Jesus, you begin to trust the gospel, live differently, you're not necessarily going to be applauded in the world that you live in. What's going to happen to you could very well be what happened to Jesus. You can be spit upon. You will take up your cross and follow Christ. You will go about a way of living that may result in ridicule it may result in shame it may result in disgrace but the hope of the gospel is that that doesn't define our story just as Jesus was raised from the grave so too shall we be so whatever amount of self-denial and sacrifice we issue to follow Jesus it will be worth it in the end because we know just as the father vindicated the son, the father will vindicate all of his children. So there's no amount of shame and disgrace that you and I can experience as we follow Jesus that can hinder us from the reward of following Jesus in heaven. So we give our lives to the Savior. We trust him to overcome our spiritual blindness, believing he's worth it. Believing he's worth it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the ways in which you have opened and are opening our eyes to see your beauty in Jesus. I pray, Father, that as we think about Christ crucified and risen, as we think about what it means to follow him on the way, to assume a posture of repentance, to, to follow you through this world, I, I pray, God, that you would give us grace to do it in a way that would that would showcase the worthiness of Jesus and how valuable he is. I pray that in those days where we are discouraged, in those days where we are dismayed, in those days where we are distracted or maybe even deceived, I pray that in those days you would 
open our eyes that you would speak to us through your people and open our eyes to see more readily your beauty in Jesus. Stir our affections and our faith in Christ crucified and risen. Let our eyes be fixed upon him so that we may indeed see everything. God, I ask and I pray this now in his name. Amen.